Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Avald Mosler. It's uh, January 11th, 2021. We're at Teutonic Wine Company in Portland. Thank you so much for joining us today, Avald. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, first question, and as you know, most important question is why wine? Yeah, basically, um, I get asked that question quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and not only by wine, but uh, why wine in Oregon? Um, and um, I always have a kind of a very quick, uh, short answer to that. And um, I tell the people, if you are born with the name Mosela and you come from the Mosel Valley, then you have almost no other choice in life than go somewhere and uh, promote uh, Mosel wine or German wine. So that is a quick answer. However, um, of course, it is much more complicated and uh, detailed uh, how I came to Oregon and how I get into wine. So, but um, uh, definitely, I, I really think you know that I was born in the Mosel Valley. Um, um, Basically, it started there, you know. Um, mm -hmm. My family, we had a few vineyards there. Uh, it was very small. Um, my father basically passed away when I was five, five months old, but my mother inherited a few vineyards from, uh, from their parents and they culti cultivated these vineyards. Mm -hmm. And honestly, um, if anybody would have asked me, you know, oh, you, do you ever want to be in the wine business? I would have said no because a lot of things um, what I associated as a kid with the vineyards was quite negative, you know. Um, my mother had to walk for other people in the vineyards and um, when, then I had to go, go to other people taking care of me mm -hmm. and um, daycare, that is what I want to say. <laughs> and, um, so that was, uh, my mother was gone the whole day and so, and then if she took, I have a sister, if she took this to the vineyard, it was kind of boring in the vineyard, it was in the winter too cold, it was in the summer too hot, and we were thirsty and hungry and you know, so uh, vineyard was not my favorite thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, but um, yeah, that have changed then in the, uh, in the coming years. Um, yeah, um, I was also, when I became a little bit older, I was not really the hard vineyard worker, you know. I had to help in the vineyard, you know, cultivating the soil and so. And um, my mother sent me to the vineyard and uh, she was watching me from across the river. Um, and she said, oh, I hope he does a second line up, you know. So most of the time when I walked one line up, I came home. So, so uh, vineyard, as I said, was sort of kind of a favorite thing. Um, however, you know, the, the Mosel Valley is a very uh, 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 nice place to live. The town I lived was at that time um, 500 people. We lived in a small street, there was around nine, ten houses. And in, at the harvest time, almost everybody was crushing grapes, except our family. Our vineyard was too small, so we belonged to a little uh, co-op in the village. Mm -hmm. So we had delivered the grapes there. 
uh, to give you an idea, you know, the amount of grapes uh, what we are harvesting together with my grandfather, from my father's side, was maybe uh, was one barrel, not uh, like a barrick here, but in Germany we have this 1,000 liter barrels, but it's the amount of four barricks here, so that was basically the total amount of grapes we harvest. So, yeah, I. Um, I am surprised you know, that I ended up in Oregon um, because, uh, again, in my childhood and as a teenager, I didn't have a lot of uh, self-confidence because, um, you know, as I said, you know, my, our father died and uh, my mother had to work very hard and we had very small vineyards. Mm -hmm. And I, all my friends, they had a tractor at home and they, they uh, pushed the wagon for the harvest time in the, uh, with the tractor in the vineyard. But uh, my grandfather put on the cow, you know, <laughs> and uh, brought the wagon to the ferry boat. And, you know, so, so it was very uh, simple and very basic. So I always thought, oh, we are the very poorest family in town. Of course, there was a few other families who had only a few vineyards. Everybody, I would say, every family had vineyards there. So, and, um, yeah, I think um, it changed uh, basically um, when, I, when I went to the military, you know, I, I, when I was 19 years old. So up to 19 years, I, I was living in this town and I thought there's almost nothing around uh, outside this town, you know. When you live in the Mosul, um, I mean, you even don't know the neighbor town at that time, you know, that was in, I born in 53. Uh, you don't know the, the people from the other town or across the river. So this, uh, really, you live in this town, and I thought, oh, that is the world, you know. And um, I also had the idea that the best wine in the world is produced in our town. You know? Even, you know, our town is called Zeltingen-Rachtisch. Zeltingen is a bigger part, and Rachtisch, where I grew up, is a smaller part. Zeltingen had basically the more famous vineyards you know, than our town. But anyway. Uh, one time when I was 19 years old, um, I drove with a friend to South of France, and I remember we are passed into uh, uh, we passed to Burgundy, and I saw all these vineyards, and I was amazed. Wow, there's so many vineyards here, and um, but I thought for myself, oh, the wine cannot be as good because the vineyards are not as steep as in our area. So that is, I was very naive. So. <laughs> Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, uh, then this 19 years I was called into the army, um, in the German army. I didn't want to go there. And, um, but then I noticed uh, that I had a gift, a natural gift, uh, was of interest for many other people, you know. Um, I remember one time a general came and we stayed in line. And he, he was saying, oh, what's your name? And I said, uh, Mosula. And then he was saying, uh, where you come from? And I said, from the Mosul. And he said, oh, Mosula from the Mosul. Interesting, interesting. And so, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. So and then, you know, I brought wine up to the base. And the people always uh, said, wow, you know, it's the wine. I have to say, even um, I didn't like the vineyard. But um, before 1971, we are in Hörich. My sister and I were in Hörich, the vineyards from my father's side, mm -hmm. uh, uh, grandfather, grandparents. So we had a few more vineyards. And, um, 
harvest time was always very special, you know. But um, so in 1971, when you know the German uh, history a little bit as well, in 1971, the Germans created a new wine law, you know, and he created his names, Cabinet Spätes Auslese, a kind of a quality level, mm -hmm. um, but rates the quality and the ripeness level of the grapes at the harvest time. And uh, before 1971, almost every little town had also a little negotiate, a little co-op. Mm -hmm. And small growers like our family delivered the grapes there. But in 1971, this little village co-ops was eliminated and they built one central bigger co-op in the town of Bernkastel, but it's only you know, five minutes away from my hometown. And uh, so our family or we was too small to be part of that. So my sister in the meantime got married and also in the winemaker family, I mean everybody's a winemaker family. <laughs> and uh, so we decided to make our wine ourselves. So in 1971, 73, 75 and 76 we made our own barrel of wine. And uh, so when I went to the German army in 1973, uh, yeah, um, yeah, there was some wine available but I could bring it to my friends there. So. So that was the first time I noticed, um, um, you know, wine is something very special. No? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't want to go on too long. I have another question, but I can, uh, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, that, that's, you, you know, you're in the army. You, you notice the wine is kind of a powerful thing. Yeah, so exactly. what's the next step for you at that point? You know, um, basically, um, one experience I had in the army, but uh, also, um, I mean, first of all, uh, all my uncles and my cousins and so all of them was winemaker and they had really you know their own production their own label and things like that and uh, I took um, vacation time um, every harvest time for two or three weeks and I helped to uh, carry out the, um, help to carry the grapes out of the vineyards you know we had this kind of back container, uh, you know, get kind of four or five buckets in that back container and then you walk up and down the hill, you know, and I of course was a strong guy and um, so you do that the whole day. And uh, going back a little bit to my uh, younger years, you know, that was also, as I mentioned, you know, harvest time was always very special, but when I was strong enough to get a little, little uh, back container for two packets, uh, buckets of grapes, and I could carry grapes, that then people said, wow, you're a strong guy. And so, so then it became a lot of fun to do that and you know, things like that. But uh, back to the military, so I took vacation and helped my um, cousins and my neighbor you know, to carry grapes out of the vineyard. And um, so, and the harvest time uh, was always extreme special because in the evening after harvesting the whole day, you press the grapes and uh, then people, uh, neighbors came by and you drink wine and things like that, so. Yeah, so wine um, also was in that little town, I think in every little town in the Mosa Valley, was an everyday thing, you know. Mm -hmm. It was always available. Uh, even we didn't produce our own wine for up to 1971, but there was always wine at home. I remember uh, my grandfather, um, when he came from the church, after mess on Sunday morning, he came at home. My mother opened a bottle of wine. 
we have these little cups, you know, uh, not uh, stem glass, like this thing here, you know. And um, so she put him a glass of wine, and my grandfather was always saying, that is one mouthful of wine. So he drank it, and then he talked about stories and things like that. And a half hour later, he had another cup, and then he went home to So wine was always there. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, I came to the military, you know, and um, so I, I didn't want to go. I wasn't really a military guy, but I, they called me in, you know, and I went, I, had, I went to the airborns and I jumped and things like that. And I became a ranger. I mean, I'm totally, perfectly trained as a soldier, you know. Not that I am trained myself, but I trained also other people as a sniper and, you know, and all these kind of things. So I was a very professional soldier. When I was 27 years old, um, the base asked me, oh, you know, the lieutenant or whatever it was, hey, you want to sign up for your whole life? You know, that, that meant uh, I should have stayed to the, in the army to my age of 53 and then retire, you know. And I said, yeah, you can try, because only a few people were selected at the time who applied. And I thought, oh, they don't take me anyway, but, you know, let's give them a try. And of course, they took me, you know. <laughs> So, and, um, but then in 1985, so I was there uh, for 12 years, 12 and a half years, I, I, I had the feeling I had done everything, now I had a kind of a higher rank and you know, and I thought, wow, now it is only a job and it's not my life now and um, so I quit basically. And, um, and there was another second lieutenant he also was a ranger, and uh, so we said, oh, let's go to uh, Canada, basically, and find out if I really can survive in the wilderness. So <laughs> <laughs> that was a kind of a motivation, you know, so. And um, so we flew to Vancouver and um, traveled to White House, went down the Yukon River uh, for 600 miles in a canoe, and went to Alaska and things like that. So, he went back after a few months, and for me it became a trip for for one for one year. You know, uh, yeah, I traveled uh, down on the west coast. I passed to Oregon and uh, went to California. I want to go to the Napa Valley um, to um, you know, experience the harvest there. But uh, when I came to Napa, it was already uh, a little bit late <laughs> because the harvest was much earlier than it was happening in Germany and so on. So, and I think that is the point when it really starts that, uh, that I made a decision uh, to uh, get in the wine business. What was happening is I met a woman in the Napa Valley and uh, I spent a couple days with her and one day she was saying, um, I, um, oh, I need to drive back to Oregon, you know, she was living in Ashland, and um, it's a long drive, and so, and I said, oh, I have nothing to do, I hitchhiked basically, you know, <laughs> all the way from Alaska to uh, San Diego and even to Mexico, and so, but, um, so it was all a kind of an outdoor trip, you know, mm -hmm. and I said, oh, yeah. I drive you to Oregon, and I always come back, come, come back to the Napa Valley, and you know. So, but then I spent 
a few months in, in Ashland and um, one time I went to a sweet shop to get some ice cream and I heard a guy speaking German there. And I have to mention, um, you know, my English was very bad, you know, at that time. Even I had, I studied some English or so, but it was always my, my weakest subject in school, you know, so I, I, I have not practiced speaking English, you know, and, um, and I used it. And so it was just a kind of a basic thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but, um, so, so was, I was happy that somebody spoke German there, and so, and it was a guy from India. And uh, so I said, oh, you're from Germany, or you speak German. And he was saying, yeah, you know, I studied in Germany. I live now in Ashland. And um, then, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm traveling. And uh, so, and then we talked about wine. And he said, so what are you going to uh, do when you, uh, when you are going back to Germany? I said, I will be in the wine business. And I have to say, um, when I quit the army, you know, it was a kind of a big step in my life because my life was very secured, you know, um, you know everything was uh, very easy, you know, there was the Cold War, but it wasn't really a war, you know. <laughs> the German army was very liberal, there was a lot of free time, you know, and uh, when you uh, did the service, uh, when you, you know, service for, uh, a week outside and you get a few extra vacation days so I had months of months of vacation you know and I traveled with many people all over the world you know but so and um, but when I left the army I had a kind of sleepless nights you know I thought oh you know now what are you going to do and one night uh, you know I waked up and I said um, and I had an idea at that time, you know, I thought, oh, wine is a kind of a great thing and thing. And I want to do, start a wine business in Germany for tourists who come to the Mosul Valley and bring them to wineries. And so I saw it's a tourist and wine business. That was my idea. So I had saved a little bit of money and I thought, okay, a certain way I use for traveling and the other uh, amount of money I, I save when I come back to Germany and start my business. So that was the idea. Mm -hmm. So that is what I told this guy from India. And um, he uh, and he said, "Wow, that sounds so interesting. Uh, this wine should be available here." And I said, "Ah, oh, yeah. The, I mean, America is amazing. I have been one time before in 1981 in uh, in on the East Coast, traveling from New York to Key West. So it was my second trip to America, and." Um, and I said, wow, America is so exciting. So it was a kind of a love for America. And uh, I, uh, let me uh, look into that, you know. So after one year, I flew back to Germany. I spent only four months in Germany, but I went to everybody who had anything to do with uh, wine export. And so I went to the Chamber of Commerce. I went to some other companies. I talked to some people in my hometown who exported wine. And um, yeah, and uh, I, I know a very small uh, exporter gave me a booklet what was saying how to export wine to the United States, you know. <laughs> so I read that book and I studied it, you know. So after four months, I, um, in Germany, 
I, uh, there was basically two companies. So the whole population uh, in Seltingen and Rachtisch, um, my hometown was 500 maybe at the time, uh, seven, 800 and so. So it was less than 3,000 people, you know, uh, two and a half thousand people. And uh, there was one company, uh, Selbach is the name, and um, it was basically the biggest winery in my hometown, you know, and they just started to export wine to another uh, importer in, on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I talked also to them, but the people was not there when I went there. And, um, but just a week before I was ready to go back to the United States, you know, to start a wine company, uh, the family Selbach called me up and uh, said, oh, Ewald, we have heard you want to go to the United States uh, and import wine, and it would be interesting, interested to talk to you. And so then I met with them and he said what he did already and so And make a long story short, but that was the first company who exported wine to me. So I uh, uh, had only 13 different uh, Selbach wines when I started. So. so, yeah. So that was um, in Ashland. So I flew back to Ashland. I saw they go to. Uh, uh, to LA basically because of a big population of people. So I, I flew to LA first and I, um, I checked around, you know, buying shops and so. And I called up the guy in Ashland, his name was Abe, basically. Yeah. And um, I said, hey Abe, um, I come from a small town, you know, 500, 600 population and Los Angeles is pretty big. I really don't know where to start. And he said, uh, come to Ashland and um, so and I had no idea about all this paperwork and all this kind of things and licenses and so and um, so then I drove to Ashland and we were sitting together and we looked I mean at that time there was no computer <laughs> we, we called up the oil to see and they asked you know what what uh, has to be done. And so we collected the information and filled all the applications and so on. It basically took one year to get all the licenses together. And uh, Abe was saying, uh, instead of going to Los Angeles, uh, check out Portland, Oregon. That is almost like Germany. So, <laughs> so that is why, and there's a lot of good restaurants. Yeah? And that was in 1986, you know. So that is why I went to uh, Portland, Oregon, and um, yeah, I was living first in a dormitory uh, at the PSU, took a few English classes and things like that, and, um, and every few months I flew back to Germany, you know, so I, you know, because I had only a visitor visa, and the business what we started went basically of Abe's name, the guy from, from India, mm -hmm. so it was all him. And the idea was, you know, I get the wine in Germany, come over here, promote the wine, you know, they're selling a container of wine and then I live in Germany. So I never was, uh, um, it was never my intention uh, to, um, to live here. Mm -hmm. and so, so after one year, we had all the licenses, you know, a little warehouse in the basement that was not bigger than a container. <laughs> And uh, so then I ordered a container of wine from Delbach, 1,000 cases, you know, because I had no idea how the wine business works. Um, 
I thought, oh, he's selling 25 cases to this restaurant, 100 cases to this restaurant, the container is gone in a week, you know. Everybody must love this wine because the wine from my hometown is the best in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pretty naive. And, uh, and then, I, you know, I go back to Germany and they're getting ready for the next container, you know. And so that was basically my business plan. So then the container came. We unloaded the container. It fit just in that little warehouse. And um, so then I started selling wine, you know. And um, still my English was almost not existing, you know. And um, I left um, after the dormitory on PSU. I uh, rented a little place somewhere. And there was another family uh, guy, a couple living below, you know. was an Egyptian guy. And we became friends and so. And so he said, oh, what do you do? In the phone book there are all these wine shops, you know. And then you make some cold calls and say, I'm Ewald, I'm from Germany, I sell German wine, and, you know, can I make an appointment, you know, so, so that was, you know, so I, I practiced that, you know, and made this cold calls, you know, and called, uh, you know, this wine shops and so, and then I heard sometimes the people saying, hey, uh, my, can you come over, there's this guy, I cannot understand the word, so, <laughs> so it was like that, you know. and, uh, yeah, and so, but I remember my first sale was to Woodstock Wine and Daily, you know, a little wine shop. And uh, he bought six bottles of wine, that was my first sale. And the wine at that time was around 275, 295 a bottle wholesale, you know. And uh, yeah, so that's how, how it started. So then I noticed. Um, uh, it's not a good idea to go back to Germany, you know. I mean, you have to be here and selling wine, you know. But, um, you know, then I flew back to Germany and, you know, and now <laughs> it was very interesting because I was, first of all, uh, when I was 16 years old, I, I had a blue collar job. Then I came to the army, so I always was this kind of, you know, uh, guy, outdoor guy, and so now Abe, who was also a salesman for a pharmaceutical industry uh, company, who always visited doctors in the suit, he said, oh, if you want to be successful in America, you always sell wine in a suit, you know, so you go to the business. So I had my black suit <laughs> in Oregon, you know, and I, you know, and when it was raining, I had an umbrella and my bag of wine and so so that's how I was selling wine there. So now, of course, I feel like the big businessman in, in Oregon, you know, and I came back to my little town and everybody was, wow, Ewald, you know, he's so, and uh, so. So that, uh, so I, you know, became a little bit arrogant, you know, so now I'm a businessman, you know. So that went on only one year. The, the company at that time, called Vintage Europa, you know, it doesn't make much sense, but it was an idea for my uh, uh, Indian friend and said, okay, we do it Europa, Europe, because then we are able to also bring eventually French wines and Italian wines, etc. Like so, and he was not working in that business, it was only me, you know, so, and uh, so, but after one year he was saying, 
Uh, do I talk too much or you want to have other questions? No, it's perfect. <laughs> uh, okay, perfect. good. After one year, he was saying, ah, um, oh, there's no really money in this business, you know, I mean, and the risk with the alcohol and uh, liability is too, and it was all on his name, of course. You know. um, it's, it's very high. I, I think I, I want to go out of it, you know. I said, oh yeah, you know, but now I have this warehouse full of wine. And in the meantime, uh, I sold all this wine and uh, we get already a second and a, a third container. I mean, it was selling, you know, you know. And uh, every few months I flew back to Germany, you know, so I, because you get a, at that time, I think you get a visa for a half year, you know, you could stay six months, you know, I mean, you was not allowed to walk really, but I only was the outside guy who promoted wine and things like that, you know. So, and, um, so, yeah, and then in 1990, oh, so, so then it, went out of the business, you know, and I said, oh, I have all this wine, you know, what are they doing now? And at that time, there was two other importers for German wine. So my story is more a German wine story in Oregon. Even today, I work uh, with the Oregon winery, you know, but it's, it's, uh, most of the time was uh, German wine. Um, so at, um, at this, this time, there was two importers who, uh, besides having this very cheap wine, Liebfraumilch and Blue Nun, but was uh, quite popular here in the US market, there was two importers who was focused on fine German wine. One guy was living on the East Coast, his name was Terry Thies, you know, and I met him in Germany a few times for Selbach because he was also the importer. So I met Terry and we tasted wine together and so. And another guy was a guy in, uh, California in San Diego and his name was Rudy Wies. A little bit uh, older guy, I mean older than I was. Terry Thies was around my age. And both of them have started a year or a couple years before, before that. So the, everything was still very young and so. And um, Rudy Wies wine was already available in Oregon here, you know, and he had uh, he decided to work with uh, very fine producers who all was members of a, a high-quality uh, group of Germany called VDP, Organization of High-Quality Producers and so. So he had only um, uh, wines for that organization and the director, was, uh, yeah, director of that organization, he was his exporter in Germany and Rudy Wies was the guy here. So, I saw his wine, so I was basically his competition here in Oregon, you know. Lemmer Wine Company had Rudy Wies wines. And I called up Rudy Wies and I said, hey Rudy, um, you know, I'm I also importing German wine and I'm in Oregon, I see your wines around and so, and so. And, um, but um, a week later he called me up, he said, hey Ewald, um, I, uh, I coming to Oregon, you know, I may want to make some changes, you know, so I, I, as I learned later, he took some information, he said, there's this crazy guy running around selling this not so popular wine, you know, uh, it was all negotiated wine, but I had in the beginning, and um, so, but he's quite successful, he's pushing me out of the market, also. and um, so he came and um, I said, hey, Rudy, uh, yeah, if you want to stay, I, um, um, you know, you can stay with me. At that time, honestly, I had even not a bed here. I had only, I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor, and I bought my first futon for Rudy Wies. <laughs> I said, oh, he's coming, and, you know, maybe 
I invited him, you know, maybe I should buy a bed. So. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, so then he came and I, I told him the story. I said, oh yeah, I'm a little bit in a kind of a difficult situation because um, you know, uh, my partner want to get out of the business and so on. And he said, um, there's another company called uh, Domain Selection. At, time, at that time, it was Classic Wines, and then we changed the name. And um, they are very nice people, and I'm planning to talk to them too. And so I want to make some changes. And so, and I have met the owner of uh, Classic Wine. His name was Konstantinos Ariston, the Colombino. And uh, one time at a supermarket or a wine shop. He said, hey, what are you doing here? And so, and I said, oh, I'm selling some wine. He said, are you crazy? And so, so, and he was from Greece, uh, Greece you know, and um, I traveled many times to Greece, so we had something in common, and yeah, we became friends, you know, and so, and I said, oh, yeah, I know Dino, and so, so anyway, Rudy Wies um, said, okay, you know, I would give you the German wines, you know, and, um, but, um, you know, if you maybe uh, talk to Dino, so, and he can, uh, he have all the licenses and all this kind of thing, so, and that is what I did, basically, so then I moved to Domain Selection, so the following years, uh, the, the wine was imported by Domain Selection, you know, and um, I came over here and still promoted wine and things like that, so. And then came 1990, you know, I, um, uh, flew back to Germany like a few times a year, you know, had a ticket over Canada and uh, went to the Mosul in my black suit still, you know, <laughs> and uh, so and then uh, after two weeks I went to, in the meantime I went to wine shows and things like that and uh, met with some other growers and so and um, yeah, when I tried to fly back to Canada, the US immigration said, uh, what are you doing here? You're flying in and out, and said, oh, I'm promoting German wine, and the immigration guy, officer was saying, no, 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 not with this kind of uh, visa, you know, here, you know. So I tried to go, uh, go by Greyhound into the United States, and yeah, I couldn't fly, and that didn't work out, so they took me out, so I would, in my black suit, I walked with my two suitcases between, United States and Canada back to the Canadian border. And anyway, I had to fly back to Germany and uh, I talked to a lawyer in Seattle on the phone and he said, oh, it doesn't work, you know, you need to go back. And uh, so, so the export of a Rudy Beast, you know, uh, his name was Fritz Haag and I think he just passed away uh, a few months ago. And um, so he was a very powerful person, and I visited him and he said, hey, you are back, what's your, you sell wine in, in, in Oregon? And I said, yeah, you know, I had a little problem, he didn't let me in there, you know. <laughs> and so we talked and he said, uh, oh yeah, it's so hard to find people here, we want to recultivate our best part of the Braunberger Jufferssonnenuhr, where the vineyard, you know, one of his best vineyards, the Sundial, and the vineyard just below the Sundial. And he said, uh, yeah, it's so hard to find people, and so. And I said, oh, Mr. Haag, I said, um, 
I have nothing to do, you know, I come and help you, you know. And so, so then we have was uh, recultivating this vineyard and how that is done in Germany, and maybe not today anymore, but uh, at that time, as wide as the vineyard is, you know, you build a cave three feet deep, three feet uh, wide, you shovel the soil behind you, you know, and then the next three feet you put in that hole and then you turn the soil over so the young soil comes on the top, you know. So that is how it was done. So mostly I had plasters on my hands. And <laughs> but by doing that I became extremely good friend with uh, Fritz Haag. And, uh, and I have to say um, that I couldn't enter the United States was the best thing that ever could happen to me because Fritz Haag, we became friends. Uh, you know, we have this formal thing in Germany, Z, you know, when you talk to a person who is older or not, uh, not a friend, or you have do. So Fritz Haag offered me, oh, you can say Fritz and do to me, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, and because he was a very influential person, he showed me around to all other major estates in Germany and he said, oh yeah, that is Ewald, you know, he sells my wine in, um, in the United States and so, and then, you know, I had access to all other producers, you know, so, yeah. So eventually, you know, I think it was a half year or five or six months I had to stay in Germany and do some paperwork. I flew back uh, to the United States and then we got a lawyer and we created a corporation, you know, so then after 1990, this whole thing became more structured and legal. <laughs> and so, so then I got my own import license and things like that. So that is how, how it started, you know. And, um, and um, yeah, and to the, I have to say, you know, in, in Oregon, um, even in the beginning when I came, there was this first generation of Oregon winemakers, you know, Bill Fuller and uh, David Arsheim and Myron um, uh, Redford and so on. And even it was a kind of a competition, you know, I brought other wine here and they want to sell their own wine. But I have to say all these people, this first generation supported me in the beginning because, um, you know, they invited me one time because, I, I, you know, first of all, I could not understand, you know, that I showed the wine around and very few people like this wine, you know. I mean, almost nobody liked it, you know. So I don't want to say that I was the first one, but um, I did taste things in a, in a supermarket because in Germany, so, you know, wine is not a big thing. It's, if you sell potato chips or wine, it's basically the same thing, you know. And um, so I thought, oh, I do uh, tastings in supermarket. At that time, we had to get a, a license from OLCC for one day. You had to go to the police department and design it up and so, and then they could uh, pour wine there for a hour or two. So, and I remember, you know, people came and said, what, a wine tasting in a, in a supermarket? I never have seen anything like that, you know? And what are you, what you serving? And I said, oh, I serve German wine. Oh, it's so freezing, all of the, all the wine was freezing, but I imported. And the people, uh, not all, but many people said, oh, okay, and they turned away, you know? <laughs> So even they didn't want to taste it, you know. And, and so they have the best wine in the world, you know. So, yeah. But um, one time, uh, Myron Redford um, uh, invited me, and that was already uh, after 10 years on the market. 
well, he, had, he was 10 years on the market or whatever. And he said, ah, oh, you know, um, we're going to have a vertical tasting of the last 10 vintage or 12 vintages, you know. And his wine, Riesling, but has a Riesling, of course, um, was all a bit on the drier side, you know. And at that time, dry wine was not so popular, dry Riesling was not so popular as it is today. Uh, most of the Mosul wines in particular had a little bit residual sugar. Mm -hmm. So, and I thought, wow, you know, so, and I have to say, you know, this wine was just amazing, in particular the older Rieslings, you know, I mean, it was different than the Mosul wine, what I was used to drink, but it was very, very well made and very good and, you know, uh, in particular with a few years of age. So, mm -hmm. so I learned slowly to um, uh, enjoy Oregon wine, not so much Pinot Noir, because I always thought Riesling is the king of grape, you know. Even I learned by then that not the best wine is growing only in our town. There was a few other wine regions and other villages with some very good wine too, and other wine producers. So, so and um, yeah, and then also it was very interesting. Uh, at that time, there was only a few, a handful of uh, wine distributors, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Less than ten, I would say. You know, I mean, Lemma and Hinsdale, and you know, all this kind of domain selection, and you know, um, and I have to say, you know, also these people, the salespeople, supported me also all the time. I mean, I was very welcome in in, in Oregon um, when the Columbia Wine Company also when the salespeople had to create a wine list for a restaurant, uh, they called me up and said, "Oh, Ewald." I need also a few German wines, you know, I do this wine list, you know, what should I put, you know, so they asked me and so, so, so I had to say, you know, I mean, um, the whole industry supported me. And also what I, what I learned here in, in Oregon, I mean, um, I had this kind of idea anyway before, you know, because I traveled quite a bit in Europe and, um, and uh, when you, you know, in, in the beginning it was only my hometown. I didn't, you know, uh, know other cultures and so. But then I, I noticed, wow, you know, when we traveled to Greece and to France and to England, there was always people when you came in a difficult situation, you didn't know where to go, or, you know, and there was always people helping you. And so, I mean, people are very nice everywhere, you know. It's the same experience in the United States, you know, and. Um, and then also with wine, I, uh, I noticed, you know, it was, uh, I mean, even a few, only a few people drank wine at the time, but it was always what a lot of people was interested in, you know, the oh, wine and so on. You want to be associated with wine. And so, so my position was really kind of uh, cool. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, uh, yeah, that was how it, um, was in, in, in that time, yeah. So yeah, then, uh, yeah, there was a lot of people um, who had a lot of influence of my business, you know. Um, uh, for example, you know, the company I'm working with today, you know, Zero uh, Zero Wines, uh, Chris Herman, he was a friend, uh, became a friend. He and his parents basically became a friend of mine uh, in the early 90s, you know, 95 or 96, um, we are 
his kids and the kids from John Powell at Cameron went to the same school, I think. And uh, domain selection, I was uh, walking together with, you know. Uh, I still had my wine together with uh, domain selection, even I had my own license I imported. You know. mm -hmm. And I, I have to say, when I got my own license, I changed everything. Um, I changed it to Ebert Moser Selection, but it became the company name. And um, so, and uh, domain selection was the distributor for Cameron, you know. So we met, and uh, Dino, he roasted a goat every year at the Cameron Winery. Mm -hmm. Chris and his parents was invited, and, so, and Chris tells the story better than I do, but he said, he heard this guy uh, speaking German, and Chris speaks very good German, his parents are from Germany, and came up to the war, immigrated to the United States. And so he talked to me, and you know, and then we became, we became friends. And um, Chris Herman uh, uh, is a great wine collector, so he gave me access to uh, many amazing wine to taste, you know, from all over the world. And we are also traveled together to Austria, and you know, brought in some Austrian wines and things like that. So, so you know, and today we are working still together, you know. So there are a lot of people um, who had influence over it, you know. And uh, another person, for example, um, there was a wine shop, was, the wine shop is still there, uh, Great Wine Buys, and the owner who uh, um, built this wine shop, her name was Edith Star, a Jewish uh, woman who always was in the shop with her older mother and so And um, I, um, I tried to sell wine to her, I called her up, and I couldn't get the connection. First of all, I was very, uh, I feel very uncomfortable because, you know, of the history of Germany, you know. I never have met anybody in Germany who was Jewish, you know. And now, oh, and she, oh yeah, I'm Jewish, and so, oh, what should you think? And so, so I was really kind of uncomfortable. But at that time, Ross Rainey, from Isham Wood, was walking at that wine shop also. And he was, oh, Rachel, you should get this wine from this German guy. And so, and then later, Rachel and I became great friends, and I even sold her wine. She put this wine also later. So, so always there was people who, uh, you know, brought me a step forward and things like that. Uh, and she introduced me to a, a man um, who is also making wine now in, uh, in Southern Oregon, and we are friends since the 90s, uh, Peter Addisman. You know, and he had a wine tasting twice a month. Now it is once a month. He uh, brings wine from all over the world, and then people come and they are testing the wine blind. And steams the 90s, you know, I drive every month to Ashland, and we are doing it together. We are setting up this tasting, and you know, and so Peter and I uh, became also good friends, and so you know. And we traveled also to Europe and uh, things like that. So there was always people involved too. In my company, uh, Ebert Moser's election, um, it was for a long time a one-man operation. You know, I mean, in connection with uh, domain selection and so on. But at a certain point, um, I get my own warehouse because uh, Dino had to move and uh, everything was too small. We were expanding. I brought more wine in and things like that. I had sometimes five, six hundred different uh, labels, you know, I mean, and um, I also noticed um, that, you know, I mean, I had all, not all, but 
most of the top producers from Germany and also later from Austria, you know. And, um, and you want to do good for every winery, but you cannot do that, you know. There's always wineries who are selling easier and not because of the quality, but, you know, because the label and things, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know why. But. So and then some people getting unhappy and things like that and they move on and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, yeah, that was the experience I made. Um, yeah, I forgot to know what I want to say, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm oh, oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. But um, yeah, what I was saying is, you know, uh, so there was a kind of a group of customers and uh, people who became friends from outside, you know, and we are still friends today, you know, and uh, but also um, there was, uh, you know, in the mid 90s, uh, there was also uh, people joined my company. For example, there was a guy, uh, Peter Lim. You may know the name. He's a very authority on uh, champagne right now. Wrote an amazing book, you know, and I can recommend to everybody to get that book. You know, um, Peter Lim was working for a wine shop. He was the son uh, of two doctors uh, from in California, I think, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, but and he should become a doctor too. As a wish of his parents, but he decided uh, he liked wine better, you know, and he worked for a wine shop down in California and later he came to Oregon. And uh, he was always so excited when I came to the wine shop and brought um, my wine. And uh, one day he, he said, oh, I, I'm going to travel to France, he said, you know, for three months. When I come back, I want to work for your company. So I said, okay, you know. So, Peter Lee was basically my first um, salesperson, although, you know, working together, I mean, he... Uh, and uh, so when Peter joined the company, he said, wow, there's also this amazing Austrian wine, you know, there's this producer and there's this company in, uh, uh, in uh, Chicago called Swinde Vino, they have all these top producers, you know, and uh, so I should get these wines too, you know, and uh, so... That's how I came then to the Austrian wine. So we are contacted being the Vino, then we get all this kind of Hertzberger and Knoll and Eric Spischler and things like that. And then, you know, we had all these amazing wines, you know, now also in Oregon. And uh, then, you know, uh, I, in the meantime, I came, became friends with Kostermann and I traveled to Austria together, visited all these estates and things like that, you know and found a few other ones that we brought them in, you know, so we had Vino Vino. In the meantime, also this other guy on the, um, on the East Coast, Terry Tees, he had German and Austrian wine as well, in also Champagne, uh, but we get also his selection, you know, so I have basically the Ebert Moser selection, the Rudy V selection, mm -hmm. with all the VDP estates, and then the Terry Tees selection, Austrian and German wine. So we had so much wine here in Oregon, and there's no way you can make everybody happy, so. Uh -huh. <laughs> but but um, it became basically, um, I mean, uh, well, all the things was happened uh, that I, I guess I became authority in Schoen and Austrian wine. I was very amazed about that because, um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, before I came to Oregon, I knew very little about wine. I mean, I know how to pick it, how to press it, you know, and things, you know. But I never, if you believe it or not, recently, I never tasted a wine from that 
Company Selbach Oster in my own town because it was, it was just not available. I never tasted the wine from Cheche, Prüm or Fritzhagen, you know, before I came to Oregon. So, so almost everything that I learned about German wine, I learned in Oregon. So, and uh, not that I learned it here, but um, because by doing it, by coming to Oregon, I was invited to wineries. I went to the wine auction to trade shows in Germany, you know. And there was this crazy guy, you know, uh, from Germany who did something in Oregon. And so, and it's the same like uh, for you, you know. Uh, maybe people come to you and say, oh, you know, uh, Rich is the biggest authority on, on the Oregon wine history, you know, even you was not planning to do that, but you get all this information from the people, you know, everybody tells a story and, you know, and that is how it comes together, you know, and then eventually, you know, if somebody wants some information, it comes to you, you know, and mm -hmm. so that's how it, how it works in the world, I guess, you know, and, um, yeah, and um, so then, you know, people invited me. Uh, my English became a little bit better, and you can still <laughs> notice today I still, have a, I still have a strong German accent, you know, and I hope people will even understand what I say, you know, but, um, but people invited me, you know, they said, oh, can you do a wine tasting and give a speech on German wine? So I did on almost all the colleges over the years, and the uh, Mount Hood College for people who go in the mm -hmm. gastronomy um, um, uh, business and so, or um, Reed College, you know, they had a kind of a, a German house, I did wine tasting there, you know, get little wine seminars, I had a kind of a slideshow that became extremely popular here, you know, showing the vineyards and things like that. And uh, I still do, I mean, not last year because of the um, Corona uh, thing, but I always, for 25 years, I did a, a wine seminar at the, um, for PSU at Lewis and Clark uh, for the Deutsche Sommerschule on Pacific, the German Sommer School on the Pacific, you know. So, and so all these people invited me, and also wine organization like the Economically Society, you know, everywhere in Washington and things like that. And uh, so I gave speeches for hundreds of people, you know, and uh, so now I was this wine authority, but, you know, I never thought that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I, I know more than this, uh, other people who drink wine know, you know that's how it is. Yeah, then uh, Peter Lehm and a few other friends, you know, created a wine shop, a wine bar, very nice wine bar in Portland and uh, and so he left and later he, you know, he went to New York and things like that and then he became this authority on Champagne. And then uh, I think you interviewed uh, Chris Burke, you know, and he mentioned, you know, so Chris Burke showed up, you know, uh, and I was not looking for hiring anybody, but Chris Burke showed up and he said, hey, you know, I, I want to sell this German wine. And so, so then Chris Burke and we are, I worked together and uh, he was, selling wine for a few years and things like that. So, so this uh, uh, kind of a <laughs> kind of a journey. I mean, when I say, you know, I get the support, um, it's so interesting uh, from, from many uh, wine growers, you know, and when I'm looking back, you know, 
many people like Barnaby here, you know, our ways was crossing somehow, you know, and um, and uh, we are still friends, and uh, so this, you know, for example, one day, I think it was, um, I forgot the year, but David O'Reilly and Peter Rosbach, you know, they had together Shinan, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I think before that, uh, David O'Reilly was the general manager of El Cove or so, mm -hmm. or sales manager, whatever, he had a kind of position there, and he left El Cove, and um, I, um, at that time I had my own warehouse and so, and he contacted me and he said, hey, uh, I have this 25 Oregon wineries, very small wineries, you know, Sass and, uh, uh, I mean, many, you know, and Shinen um, and, you know, I forgot all these names. And he said, yeah, I'm going to sell that, but um, can you do the, the distribution, you know, the warehousing and so. So I had uh, two levels. I had a big basement and uh, 2,000 square feet upstairs and so. So the whole basement was full of, Oregon wine from David O'Reilly, and he was selling it, and we were shipping it for him, you know, with the German wine together. So David O'Reilly and I were worked uh, together for a certain time, and uh, yeah, and uh, so there was uh, no disappointment in, uh, in, uh, in, in Oregon, you know, and the, the business was growing like crazy. I mean, you know, it was like, um, you know, I mean, for some reason, Sherman wine became popular, and I heard that say many, uh, many times in Sherman, Oregon is the best market for, for uh, German wine, and so I, I don't know that, you know, but um, that was what people saying, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At a certain time, uh, that was also all in the 90s and maybe early 2000, uh, Rudy Wies called me up. Well, you know, I was walking with him anyway because I had all his wine. He said, hey, you're doing so well in, in Oregon, you know, I need some help in San Francisco. And, um, and I was already operating on my own, not with domain selection anymore, I think. So I forgot exactly. Uh, maybe I was together with, anyway. Maybe I was together with domain selection, but anyway, he said, I need some help in San Francisco. So. Besides running the business here in Oregon, you know, I was flying every month for one week to San Francisco. And um, so, and I visited all these amazing restaurants there, you know, and sold wine there for Woody Bees. And then I came back to Oregon and, you know, I did everything here. But, um, I mean, whatever it was, you know, uh, it was an amazing learning experience, you know, I mean, then I know how business is done in, uh, California, and there it was really, you know, the best thing is you go out in a, in a suit or, you know, dress very nicely, not so casual than in Oregon. In the meantime, I get also a little bit more casual <laughs> in Oregon, so I didn't, you know, use my black suit for another uh, 10 years, so. Yeah, and um, so, but then um, I, I expanded my business, uh, and I don't know exactly what year that was, to Washington, and I told Rudy Bees, hey Rudy, uh, I'm expanding also to Washington now. And that was when Chris Burke was uh, joining me. And um, so I don't have time to come to California, but over a year, maybe a year and a half, I, every Monday I flew down for one week there. So, and then, yeah, Chris Burke first uh, drove always to Seattle and to Bend and everywhere and uh, selling wine. And yeah, that was... Uh, 
that was servicing. And uh, something interesting was uh, what was also an amazing experience, you know. Um, for example, when I, um, when I got my own license in 1990, now I had to call out, uh, get, you know, fill the forms for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms at times. Today is a uh, uh, trade bureau, what is it? Alcohol and alcohol and TTV? Yeah. yeah. And so, and at that time was the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. So it was pretty crazy anyway, but so, and, um, and then I get a call from, uh, from Vancouver, from that office, and uh, uh, Mr. Mosler, you know, we are, um, we are from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, you apply for the license, but uh, we noticed you have wine already, you know, for a while, and things like that. And so and they came and checked everything, and there was an issue with the label approvals and things like that, and, you know, and it became a big issue. Uh, I mean, I can get into that story, but uh, it's not so necessary. But um, but I had to go to a hearing. I had to go down to California to the BATF for a hearing. And eventually, they gave me the license and things like that. You know, and uh, so it was kind of very difficult and complicated. But then, years later, when I um, I was not really sure, do I need also a, a, a BATF license, a federal license? if I expand to Washington or only a state license. And so, so I called up the BATF again, and there was this woman, her name was Martha, and uh, she said, oh, Ewald, you know, I'm so glad you called. And, you know, and um, um, I just went to the restaurant, my husband and I, we had a bottle of wine, and said, Ewald, was a selection? And, you know, so, and so everybody became very helpful, you know. So, <laughs> so, so beginning, you know, I, it was so difficult, you know, they always said, oh, if you show you imported wine illegally, you know, you can go to the jail, and, you know, so, so it then turned around, it became a very helpful organization. Another great experience that I had, um, um, I, on a certain point, you know, um, I was living in different places in Portland, and, uh, but um, I uh, met my uh, partner where I'm married today, you know, uh, Miguel, and he found a house right on the Columbia River, and so I moved there on Zobie Island, he was, was living on Zobie Island for quite a while, and uh, then that house was sold, and we only rented a place, you know, but it was an amazing place on the Columbia River, and so, but anyway, then I thought, oh, you know, I have this warehouse in Portland, and um, and um, now I need another house. I'm looking for a place on Zobie Island with a warehouse, and then I can operate this business from home. And, and I found a very amazing uh, place. It was just built a few years ago. and had a kind of a totally uh, uh, insulated uh, warehouse, like a kind of a six-car garage or something like that, you know? But it was, and I um, applied for the license, and. Um, and, um, and um, my neighbor, who had a kind of a mansion next to it, and so he uh, was afraid that there would be too much traffic and things like that, so he blocked it and uh, wrote a letter to the na neighbors. And I have to say, you know, I never, had, I never you know, thought, oh, all to see, you know, they give you only trouble. But I have to say, the OLCC came to neighborhood hearings 
and they defended me. They said, no, Ewald, it's a small operation, and you know, and, and I mean, they were speaking for me there. So I, I mean, people will not believe it, you know, that, uh, that the old sea can also be, you know, helpful and things like that. was a black uh, guy, I forgot his name, but he came to a couple hearings and was talking to the neighbors and, uh, you know, but, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty good. So, it, it seems like, you know, I mean, uh, uh, when uh, looking back, you know, it's like when the kids play with a little boat, you know, a little piece of wood, you know, put it in a river, you know, and um, it jumps down the river, this little thing. Sometimes a wave comes and the boat sinks, but then a second later it comes up again. So that's how I see my business sometimes. <laughs> You're very buoyant. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I, like yeah. I want to back up for a second to to Riesling. Obviously, Riesling is is the name of your is the name of the game for you, and is the wine that you, that got you here. You mentioned that Riesling was not terribly popular when you started. No. Tell me about introducing Riesling to a market that wasn't really hadn't really used it before, or hadn't really, wasn't really used to it yet, and how you got Portland to become more of a German wine place, or how you helped it get there. Yeah. I mean. Um, the thing is, you know, I mean, uh, as I said at that time, that also um, Pinot Noir was definitely one of the varieties, like uh, David Lett and so, you know, he was focused on. But there was also a lot of uh, producers and small wineries who had a kind of idea on Riesling, you know, and uh, also Chardonnay in the beginning, but Chardonnay became unpopular and then they uh, went for Pinot Gris and, the, you know, and um, so. And uh, the, German, the German wine had this image, you know, sweet and cheap, you know, and that, uh, and I think, you know, I mean, if I had a little bit impact on this market here, why Riesling became popular, I mean, every week and everywhere I did wine seminars and wine tastings, as I said, I had this slideshow later, it became a PowerPoint presentation, you know, and I was preaching wine um, everywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also, what, what had a big impact, you know, um, I, I never thought about that, but I mean, this area, as I mentioned before, the Mosel Valley is so beautiful, you know, this, uh, the, the river in Germany is 170 kilometers, so around 100 miles, and you have also little towns, around 100 little towns left and right from the river. And, um, and the vineyards are steep and so so my idea was to bring all the people here from Oregon um, you know take them with me when I went to a wine show mm -hmm. and so and or just had a business trip there I always took people with me and um, and showed them the vineyards and visited winemakers and things like that you know and that had a big impact so I noticed you know if somebody whenever somebody comes with me to the Mosel Valley I mean it becomes a Riesling lover you know I mean then the you know, and it was good for the business, you know. And, uh, and so that negativity about um, Riesling was washed away because now the Saar place, you know. Uh, and, then, and then they also discovered Oregon Riesling, I think, you know, and um, because it was different, and, but uh, it was also good wine, you know, but different. And it's the same in Germany, you know, the wine from the Mosel Valley is totally different from the Rheingau or from the Pfalz or from Baden or from mm -hmm. anything, you know, so, so and, and that, that is the beauty about the, the wine anyway. 
And uh, so that was a great thing, and that is how uh, Barnaby. Um, so yeah, Barnaby came with me. Um, yeah, this after running Ebert Moses election for a while, um, so the difficulty in my business was not selling the wine or, or you know and find customer because it became better and better and better all the time and so it was always a kind of immigration issue you know after uh, being on a, uh, just a visitor visa here for the first couple of three years you know and then it became a corporation I had a visa what calls a kind of an E1 visa called the investment visa mm -hmm. and so and that had to be renewed every five years you know and that was um, always a hassle, it was always more difficult uh, to renew it than, you know, than I thought. You know. Each time I was planning to go for a couple of weeks, you know, I had all this paper prepared and so, and then it took a month or two months or, you know, or last time it, it took, um, you know, five months again. You know, so, and my company was running here, you know, with, um, so at a certain point I was thinking, um, um, you know, it becomes too difficult to do that, and I, um, I always had also in mind I go back to the Mosul and you know, and uh, host people from America who come there and so yeah. mm -hmm. and um, but um, so then at a certain point I um, I joined Mitchell Wine, you know, so he took over the inventory and you know and he was selling the wine, so. yeah and. Uh, I was already with Mitchell Wine uh, when I had another trip to Germany. I was not really employed, I only, you know, um, I promoted the wine and Mitchell Wine was a distributor, so, you know. And, um, and um, so I still did all this promotion on German wine and I took uh, a salesperson from Mitchell with me and then also uh, um, a woman, she was uh, the wine steward from Whole Foods mm -hmm. and then Barnaby, you know. Um, Barnaby was my great customer. I think he told you the story, you know, when I came to. Mm -hmm. So, and um, Barnaby, he wants to oh, uh, be a winemaker as well and producing Riesling in particular, you know. So Barnaby came with me and we had uh, we traveled all over and we had an amazing time. That was the first time. And then Barnaby and I traveled a few more times to Germany and uh, visit other producers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was basically uh, what changed the market. I think this wine seminars, you know, uh, all the time, doing tastings in stores and, you know, wine shops and, you know, sit down tastings and walk in tastings and bringing people to the wine region, uh, what I loved so much. And, um, and uh, yeah, and that was, I think, made a difference uh, a little bit, yeah, to, to the market. Sure. As your as your company was growing and, and you and you suddenly had more options for what you were going to sell, but you wasn't just you took what you could get, but you actually were selecting wines to, to import. Tell me what you were looking for in wines that you thought would fit in the in the Oregon or then the Washington or San Francisco market. What was what what were the characteristics you looked for, and how did you sort of build out your portfolio? Yeah, uh, basically, I uh, have to say, I never looked at the market. So there was no business plan and there was no market study what the market was asking for. I mean, I had my idea, you know, and I thought, you go for it or you leave it, you know. I mean, um, for example, 
I, uh, I was used to that wine with the Dijon sugar, and it was my favorite wine. Cabinet is spätlese, you know, um, but had good acidity and a good balanced sweetness and so. I was not really into um, uh, drier full-body wines. And this wine, the drier full-body wine, was already produced in the Pfalz region and also in the Rheingau. In the Rheingau, it really, there was a kind of organization. Um, uh, Breuer was one of the first guy who uh, said, okay, we need to get focused more on the individual terroir mm -hmm. than um, on this uh, German wine law with the ripeness level. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I will come back to that. But um, so he said, okay, we're producing wine almost like white burgundy, you know, focus on the individual terroir and so and the wines are dry with very little or non-residual sugar and so on. And that was not my favorite wine in, in the beginning, but there was one winery in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Mosel Valley and that was right where the Mosel flows into the Rhine, you know, in the lower Mosel, and the winery is Heimann Löwenstein. And I remember he started uh, basically at the same time when I created my company here in 1987. He was a student, came home, came to his uh, uh, hometown, and he didn't, as I learned, he didn't encourage any vineyards because he was a kind of a revolutionary and things like that. And, uh, uh, but he leased a few vineyards and bought a few vineyards, and in that area, the, the, uh, the vineyards look totally different. They're all terraced mm -hmm. in our area where I come from, the middle Mosel and upper Mosel, the roads going up the hillside. So it's a kind of a different thing. Totally rocky and unbelievable to cultivate. I mean, it's like, so what he had this idea, uh, he calls all his wine qualitates wine, but it's a kind of a lower level of kind of everyday drinking wine, it's a German wine law. But he focused very much on the individual terroir. And, uh, so he had this vineyard, you know, Uhlen, and that had different soil. Uh, everything was very rocky, but there was a little bit iron in a certain part, you know, maybe a less than a quarter of a mile wide. And um, so that was a red slate. And then uh, in the middle, right next to that, almost every rock you lift up had a fossil. So there was a little bit more calcium in there. And then right next to it, there was blue slate, you know, there was no iron anymore. So he made different bottlings, even there was one vineyard, one vineyard named Uhlen, but he did this Rotlei, red slate, uh, Blaufüßerlei, the black slate, and then Laubach, that was the, um, the vineyard with the fossil, and other vineyards too, you know, but the, so, and all his wines was dry, almost totally dry, a little bit more full-bodied and so on. And uh, when I tasted this wines, uh, and Selbach introduced me to that, and, um, and it was just amazing. But it, it took me a while to learn about that wine, you know. But by drinking more of these wines, you understand them more, you learn about it, and so on. And, uh, yeah. So you mentioned Chris Herman earlier and, and zero, zero, 00 wines. So tell me about uh, the relationship there. You, you mentioned how early it started. Tell me how it got to you working with him. Yeah, basically, I mean, uh, after I have uh, done everything in the, in the wine business and things like that, and uh, Chris and I was friends, and I have to say, um, what was amazing about Chris and also his father and his mother, you know, uh, first of all, 
when I was invited there many times to their house and to Christmas and Easter and things like that. And they had always these amazing bottles. And, um, and uh, always when they opened the bottle and they didn't know who is the producer, there was always wine books, you know, and we are uh, investigated who is, where is this little parcel and things like that. And Chris and his father traveled many times to Burgundy and things, and you know, Chris is also a lawyer in the wine industry and things like that. So I learned quite a bit. I mean, uh, not that I ever became a kind of a expert in Burgundies and things like that, but I said, wow, I mean, these wines are like this uh, white Burgundies, you know, they are dry and uh, minerally and fresh and things like that. I mean, I never looked at Chardonnay because there was Riesling and there was Chardonnay. When, Ch when Chardonnay was buttery and big, I didn't like it basically, you know. And that's how my palate is. Not that I would say buttery Chardonnay is bad. I mean, that is also for certain customers who like that style of wine. It's, it's an amazing wine, you know, but for my palate, I didn't do it, you know. But then we had these burgundies, and some of them you know, was 10, 20 years old and things like that. And they reminded me on this kind of dry Riesling and so and so. So, so that was a great uh, learning experience about uh, wines in the world. I never would have had a chance mm -hmm. in, in my hometown to taste this wine. I mean, nobody had them there at the time. Um, uh, maybe today is different, you know, with Selbach and Klosen and, you know, so. But, so that was uh, this thing, and um, uh, when Chris and his father started Zero's Your Wine, in the beginning I only heard about it, you know, uh, Chris's father, Richard, was saying, oh, we, have, uh, we are producing some wine, and it was very small, and he told me a little bit about it, and um, uh, so that was maybe the, uh, the vintage 2013 and 14. It was to produce only a kind of a barrel of different vineyards and things like that. But um, then I learned a little bit more about it, and uh, uh, I, you know, I learned. I mean, Chris had a palate for amazing wine, and he always was saying, I mean, if we do everything, uh, and he had connection to the Burgundy producers, if we do everything, you know perfectly right and things like that, you know, can we produce this high quality of wine like it is with in, in Burgundy? And I think, you know, not only Chris, other people had that idea too, but, you know. So then the uh, created COC wine with the focus on Chardonnay and um, he uh, hired this uh, consultant, Pierre Millman, who is an amazing man, uh, from Alsace and consults many uh, high-profile wineries in Burgundy and Europe, I have to say in Germany as well, and things like that, you know. And uh, so, so then uh, at a certain point I said, hey Chris, this is an amazing project you have, you know, and uh, the taste of wine, and um, I want to be part of it, so. And I, I have to say, you know, Chris and his wife running the company themselves, you know, I'm more a kind of a background uh, person, and I, I do everything. Um, and this, um, do some tasting sometimes, uh, but uh, taking care of the organ market, but also shipping wine, 
we have a kind of a little wine house in Carlton. Uh, the wine is produced at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. I take care of the house and everything is uh, organized and things like that. So I'm the guy in the background who does everything. So. What's that experience been like for you working with a singular brand after so such a career of working with all these different brands? Uh, basically, uh, this, uh, I have to say, uh, it is much easier to sell this wine than <laughs> all this, uh, uh, you know, many labels and things like that, you know. We had the idea to import also a little bit German wine, and we did, you know, we imported wine from Selbach and uh, also Heimann Löwenstein, that's it, but I just mentioned and a few other ones. But then the tariffs came, you know, and, uh, and so we thought, oh, you know. No, this uh, is amazing um, how, how easy it is to sell these wines, even, you know, here in a much higher price level than the German wine ever was. And, uh, but I have to say, you know, when you open this wine and I go around with these restaurants, even sometimes the restaurant have not the customer base for that kind of level, but it's wow, I need to put this wine on the list. And so, I mean, right now, of course, the restaurant business have a difficult time and things. But um, no, this um, uh, it's amazing, you know, how, um, how easy it is to sell these wines. You know? so. I had a few, other Austrian wines. Uh, I, I didn't stay only with uh, German and Austrian wines. I had always other wines. I, for a while, I, um, I added also Shimena. Uh, what is the name? Uh, what is the wine? Shimena and uh, Guy. In you interviewed her too. Uh, I forget the name of the wine now. But anyway, yeah, I will, it will come back. But I, I had always some other Oregon wines. Um, not always, but sometimes other organ wines as well. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, so I was talking about Oregon wines. When you're, you 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 came with with not really much of an impression of Oregon and Portland was kind of a happy, sounded like a happy accident uh, that you landed in Portland. Tell me about your kind of initial impression of Oregon wine and the wine industry and and how you've seen it change over the years. Yeah, I mean. Um, in the beginning, uh, as I said, you know, there was uh, this first generation of winemaker, you know, and um, and then there was the second generation, like David O'Reilly and Peter uh, Rothbach and and Shehalem, uh, you know, and and um, so and the thing is, you know, all these people, you know, that was one of my very good customers, you know, also they, they liked wine and um, um, so. Of course, you know, the industry has changed quite a bit, you know, the, there's more restaurants here and the focus became really, I mean, the Oregon Pinot Noir became really the major uh, wine so for a while. And I think the latest new step is uh, moving away, not totally, but from Pinot Gris and Riesling uh, and Chardonnay is becoming the, the big thing and um, a lot of fine producers today, I mean, they are really focused on, on not the California style of Pinot and not the Burgundy, but the Oregon uh, Chardonnay, you know, with a lot of uh, focus on individual terroirs and a little bit more freshness and higher acidity and uh, cooler climate vineyards and so not so very full body wines, but wine with a lot of finesse and uh, so. And that, I think, is a, a big change in, in 
the Oregon wine industry. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think it is very successful. I mean, now I go to this um, uh, Chardonnay celebration and there's uh, many uh, great Chardonnays, you know, besides the Pinot Noirs. Hmm. Yeah, Pinot Noir, I mean, the Pinot Noir celebration um, was definitely a big change in the industry, you know, to bring winemakers in. I mean, I remember one of the first, I, do you remember when the first uh, IPNC? 87. Huh? 87, 87, I think. At the same time I started my company. So, and a few years later, I, I remember uh, there was the first time um, German winemaker, uh, Pinot Noir producers came to Oregon. It was uh, Joachim Heger from the Baden region, the Kaiserstuhl, uh, but was already focused on uh, the Burgundy varieties like uh, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and uh, uh, Pinot Noir. And he was definitely one of the major Pinot Noir producer, serious Pinot Noir producer in Germany. And another guy uh, was from the Rheingau, and his name was August Kessler. And the Rheingau is, of course, it's mostly Riesling, but I think it's on the uh, uh, west side of the valley. There's a, a village called Asmanshausen, and that village was known for Pinot Noir, and August Kessler had vineyards there. And these two guys came one of, I don't know what year it was, but was really in the late 80s or early 90s. And uh, I remember we are, we uh, visited uh, David Addisheim and then also um, Dick Ayers. Mm -hmm. And Dick Ayers still was living in a trailer on top of his vineyard there. <laughs> and so, and yeah, that was uh, the first uh, Pinot Noir celebration and that was the first showman winemaker who came. And, uh, <laughs> so, von Riesling, um, I, when I came to Oregon, I remember, um, there was a winery, um, I, I had some girlfriends in, <laughs> in the beginning and uh, one of my girlfriends brought me to a winery, Mühlhausen, and they had Riesling and other varieties, the winery doesn't exist anymore. And there was a cooking class, so I went to a cooking class and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so the industry has changed, but there's still wineries like uh, Barnaby, I mean, he went in a totally different direction, you know. Um, so. He produced Pinot Noir, but um, his focus is not the Pinot Noir, it's more the uh, white wines, I would say, and in particular Riesling and things like that. So, and what are your impressions of Oregon Riesling? How does it compare? I mean, I have to say, uh, and uh, I have to give credit to, to Barnaby, I mean, sometimes in a tasting, I would not um, uh, see the difference uh, between the Teutonic Riesling and the Mosel Riesling also. And I think um, besides individual terroir and things like that, you know, uh, but the style, how he makes the wine, I mean, he really learned it uh, at the wineries in, in Germany and uh, gets the information there and, um, yeah. And that's the way he produced the wine and, uh, yeah, the wine reminds me of the Mosel, not so much on the Rheingau and things like that. No, no I think the, and there's, uh, there's other producers too, you know, um, who are making really amazing Rieslings. I mean, as I said, one of my first experience was uh, with uh, Myron Redford, you know, and that was a totally different style. And uh, I was amazed how well this wine was aging. There's another interesting story I have to tell you. Um, Roland uh, Souls, you know, he called me up one time 
and that is so amazing, you know, when I'm looking back, how we always crossed each other and things like that. Uh, Rolling called me up one time and said, oh, Ewald, you know, um, I was in that restaurant in San Francisco, I had this amazing wine, and uh, this wine had residual sugar, and it had acid, and it went so perfectly with the meal we had, you know, and um, how do they do that in Germany, you know? I said, uh, uh, Ronin, I said, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, the, uh, I'm not a winemaker, you know, but um, I, I know the, uh, you know, the slate have a lot of things to do with it, you know, the different uh, soil. I mean, we have a lot of Devonian plus slate in the Mosel Valley. I mean, it gives the wine a lot of minerality and things like that. And a lot of winemakers focus on that and things like that. And, um, there's a big diversity on wine because they don't make just one wine planting everything there. You do it from that part and that part, you know, so there's a lot of diversity. And he said, oh, can I, um, uh, can I get, uh, buy a couple of cases and so two bottles of each? And I said, sure. And I brought him these two uh, cases of wine and a few weeks or a couple of months later, he sent me a list and every wine he brought to his library uh, to his uh, laboratory, and every wine was very analyzed, how much sugar, how much acidity, and uh, you know, he had all these numbers and so, you know, and, um, and um, so then, uh, a few months later, he brought me a bottle, and it, uh, I, I, uh, it said on the back, you know, in memory of that restaurant in California, my friend Ebert Mosler, who inspired me, and then and I, and he said, he sent me a letter, he said, you know, you know the vineyards in Germany a little bit, one of them is called Wellner Sonnenuhr, and it's one of the, you would say, a Grand Cru vineyard in Germany, you know, right next to my hometown. And he said, Wellner Sonnenuhr, watch out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so wine was pretty amazing, it had residual sugar and acid and things like that. So, so it was uh, all these little uh, stories to, uh, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm curious as you as you look back, you talk about all the all these people you've interacted with in the Oregon industry, from Chris Berg to Chris Herman to, to Barnaby to, to Rollin and all these other people you've interacted with. And you've had a pretty major impact on the market here. Tell me tell me as you look back, what how how do you measure the impact you've had? How does it how does it feel to have impacted a wine scene like that? You know, I uh, as I said, you know, I uh, I never would have mentioned that. If somebody would have told me as a child, you know, I mean, uh, um, you will be in America and selling wine. I mean, any selling wine or be in America, I would have said, you're totally crazy. It's like, you know, when you, you know, when, when a little group of friends want to play a soccer game and they have 10 friends and they said, okay, you come to my team and you to my team and then you to my, you know, the, the selecting and the, worst guys left over. I would have said, if, if uh, the question would have been, who will be in the wine business? And um, I would have been the last guy selected, you know? So that is how I felt, you know? But again, you know, at a certain point in my life, I noticed that the universe or the earth or my birth, you know, gave me a special gift, you know, with a crazy name like Mosula, you know, uh, but I mean, I didn't take attention of it in the, in the past, but I mean, a lot of people said, thought I made it up, you know, uh, because, but I thought it was an amazing gift what nature gave me, you know, and that brought me to the 
to the wine industry. And I never, never, never would have expected, you know, I mean, first of all, being in America, because on my first trip to, uh, to, to the East Coast, wow, everything was so overwhelming and, you know, it's so big. And you come from that small uh, village, you know, and uh, the whole life is there. And the people in the neighbor village speak a different language, I mean, a different slang. And so, you know, and you think that is the world. And so, and that is where I grew up and that was my thinking and, you know. But, um, yeah, I never would have imagined anything like that, you know, the impact that. Talking about bringing people to Germany, if you believe it or not, more than a thousand people have visited my little town from Oregon or, you know, California or, you know, who came and uh, groups went over there and, you know, and I connected them or took them with me and over this. So, and that have a lot of impact, you know, and um, another thing is, you know, but um, <laughs> a lot of disappointment, uh, I had more disappointment in uh, German, from Germany than in the United States. I mean, for example, um, uh, Selbach, you know, on a certain point said also, uh, uh, oh, you should pick up this winery, Dr. Lawson, you know. Um, he just took over, same thing, in 1987, you know, he took over, you know, the, the winery went to uh, the father, you know, was in the politics and so, and it didn't make any profits, and the father said, if anybody, uh, if nobody takes over this winery, I'm going to sell everything, and then only lose, only lose, you know, um, stopped his studies, you know, and took over the winery, and he had a totally philosophy about uh, how the wine has to be, and so, and um, so, and so then I brought Lozen, and I was one of the first importers also for Lozen wine, and Chris Herman, on a certain point talked to a lawyer at Chateau Saint-Michel and he uh, and uh, Chateau Saint-Michel had already a joint venture with a winery in Italy, uh, Antonori I think, uh, mm -hmm. and Chris was saying hey why you don't have a joint venture with a German winery and so and, uh, and he was saying yeah that would be interesting and so you know and so Chris said hey who do you think you know I said, hey, Ernie Lozen, he's a party guy, he always, you know, good time and things like that. And, um, and so, why we don't talk to Ernie? I mean, I could have also said Selbach or so, you know, but Ernie was the kind of party animal, you know, and uh, open for every crazy idea. And uh, so, when we traveled to Austria, we visited also Ernie Lawson and things like that. And we said, hey, Ernie, there is a kind of a good uh, possibility to work with a, a, a Washington winery, you know, Chateau Saint-Michel. And uh, Ernie said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, you know. So a little uh, year later, he sent a winemaker, but it's also a famous, very great winery today, Follenweider. Daniel Follenweider was Ernie, working for Ernie Lawson. He sent him to Chateau Saint-Michel to show them how they pick the grapes by hand and so. Uh, they did that for a few years, but they noticed that it doesn't work because it goes too slow, you know. Um, then it is too warm and you know, anyway, so. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was the connection. Then Ernie Lawson built his joint venture and they created his Aurora wine. So when you think about it, you know, it's all, if I wouldn't have come to Oregon, who almost nobody knew where it was. You know, I mean, people thought that it's close to Alaska, you know, even in Germany. 
And um, so Eva wouldn't have had this, or this Indian guy would have said, oh, Oregon is like Germany. I never would have come to Portland, you know? And um, so, but it is a changed thing and I cannot believe it myself sometimes, you know? But then on a certain point, you know, only Lawson, so then I imported his wine, but then um, we had this, all this distribution to such, uh, or the connection from Chateau Saint-Michel to all over the United States. Before that, I see I was never a kind of a, a guy for the whole the United States. You know, I, I never would have had the talent or the, to, to be an um, uh, importer for a national importer. You know. And so, you know, I shipped a little bit to Hawaii and California and some people who called me up said, hey, can I get some, you know, and then I shipped a few pallets also. But um, I never was a kind of a national importer. I focused on Oregon and Washington, you know, and so. And, um, but uh, now with Chateau Saint-Michel, only Lawson had access to this, this to, you know, Chateau Saint-Michel are everywhere. And um, in a certain way, we are shipped wine to different distributors, you know, and then Ernie said, oh, you know, that's all fine to do it under Ewald Moser's election, but I think we should create our own company. So then I helped them to create uh, Lawson Brothers here, you know, and then our warehouse became too small, we moved this wine to, you know, and then Ernie went on his own, and even it came to the point, you know, uh, I was not his distributor anymore. So, you know, things like that are happening, and I'm not, um, you know, I always thought, yeah, that is how life is, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, coming and going, uh, giving and taking, and, you know, everybody has to do what is right for them. I never was kind of bitter about it, even, you know, sometimes a little, wooden boat <laughs> underwater and you know then it came up again and so yeah so that is how it is that's how I was looking at life yeah I've got one more question for you then what's in the future for you what my what's future it, what's in your future that is a good question because you know I'm uh, honestly officially retired even I'm working full time uh, with zero zero wine I mean I love it um, to be connected to a winery with such high reputation and high quality. I mean, that is a whole new experience for me. And also uh, dealing with customers now uh, nationwide, or we are also exporting inter international now, and uh, being connected with high profile wines. I mean, even I had high profile wines in Germany too, but you know, it's a whole different group of people. And this is a kind of another very amazing experience, you know. And I'm uh, very comfortable to uh, to watch it and uh, be part of it and uh, do every everything that it will be also successful. But um, I always think, you know, the older I get, the more homesick I get, you know, because this uh, Mosul Valley is very small and um, and um, you know it's very comfortable. A lot of tourism there and um, not complicated. So I think. Maybe at a certain time of my age, and uh, if there will be more age, uh, I will go back to the Mosul Valley. But also, I'm married to uh, uh, Miguel, who comes from Puerto Rico, you know, and uh, that is also attractive to me, you know, kind of a you know, mm -hmm. island with warm climate, and even there's sometimes a hurricane, but that is happening live anyway. <laughs> and so, so we have not decided, but um, so there's some possibilities for the future. 
but uh, one thing is, you know, I mean, wine, um, I, uh, it cannot, it will be as long as I'm healthy and so it will be part of my life and uh, so, that is, that it is, yeah. So. Those are all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I didn't give you a chance to ask any questions. No, it's perfect. You answered them all. That's, 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 that's the whole point here, right? Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your yeah. time today, for your stories, for your amazing history. And we're going to go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to thank meet you. all of you. Excellent. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.